0: There's a line in what we were saying right there that I really wanna frame our whole time in Genesis four on this morning. Uh, And it's the first line there, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. you think about every song actually, any scripture that Jesse chose this morning just kept hammering away at that theme. Where sin runs deep, God's grace is more. In case you didn't notice, here's just a handful of things that we either sang or had read to us. all my sins have been forgiven. God is merciful to me. All of them. Uh, we sang, none deserving. None of us are deserving of grace of God, yet receiving life through death at Calvary. Um, we sang, uh, you, O Lord, have made away the great divide you healed, for when our hearts were far away... Your love went further still. We see God's pursuing grace even when our hearts are are bent away from God. Um, A couple of things. This happens here. Black screen. Hold on a second. That's not gonna be helpful. There we go. Um, I love this. In Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, um, I know my own rap sheet, God. (laughs) I know how big it is but with you there's forgiveness. But with you there's forgiveness. And 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. A couple weeks ago, Eric was preaching and he said, our sin problem is probably the easiest thing for us to prove, and yet it's probably the hardest thing for us to admit. Isn't that true? We tend to, as foolish as it is, pretend as if we have no sin. We pretend to ourselves, we pretend toward God, we try to pretend toward one another. And, and the crazy thing in, in the Bible is that the God of grace says what sounds counterintuitive uh, to us, that if instead of hiding in our sin, we bring our sin to him as deep as it runs, that his grace is more. It's amazing. And these two truths couldn't be clearer in Genesis 4. In fact, that's why I asked Jesse to sing that song, Lord, I Need You, that has that line, as sin runs deep, your grace is more, is because Genesis 4 and how God deals with Cain and then Cain's descendants is just this amazing pattern pattern of sin getting deeper and harder and more entrenched, and yet God, in surprising and unexpected ways, showing grace, no, honestly, the way I tend to naturally work toward other people is where sin, your sin runs deep toward me, my grace goes grows thin. But that's not the way it works with God. So let's look at the story in Genesis 4 and notice as we go along, what are we learning about sin? It's how deep it is. Secondly, how do we see God's grace surprising us through this? And third, how is this all going to point us forward to Christ because it does? Right at the end, we get this little glimmer of hope that points forward all the way to the cross. Let me read. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael and Mahujael fathered Methushael and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah, and Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the father of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I hear the home improvement voice every time I read this. Oh, 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 oh. Um, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 70 fold And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, you want us to see our sin and admit it. Uh, Quit hiding, quit pretending, and acknowledge it. And you don't want us to respond like Cain. You don't want us to harden our hearts toward it. You want us to be humble and repentant and sorry um, and to look for you for help. Lord, we need you. Like we saying, every hour we need you. Lord, I pray that, that you'd use this passage and this sermon uh, in that way to help draw us back from the ledge of sin uh, to walk in the ways that we'll find life. God, I pray that you'd help us to see your grace here uh, and that having seen how incredible your grace is, that it would, uh, it would change us. And it would make us gracious people. And it would make us people who want other people to know how gracious you are. And I pray you'd show us Christ here, how this is pointing forward to him. And for us now, looking back on what Jesus has done, that's the answer to so much of the problem we see in this chapter. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have a lot of little points here this morning. Three questions. Number one, how do we, uh, what do we learn about sin in this chapter? Seven things, and I'm gonna hit them quickly, so trust me, we're not gonna be here uh, through second service. Um, Second, how do we see God's grace unfolding at every step in surprising ways? And then third, how does this point us forward to Christ? So first, uh, seven things that we learn about sin here. The first one here I don't want us to miss right out of the gate is that sin is a worship problem before it's a behavior problem. Fundamentally, sin is a worship problem problem, which means it's a heart problem, before it's a a doing behavior problem. Look at how all this ugliness begins in chapter four. It ends with behavior, hostility, and bloodshed, and murder of a brother, but where it begins is over worship, or a lack of worship in Cain's heart. So the scene after an initial hopeful opening verse where two sons are born to Eve, and she's hopeful, God has given me children. It goes bad quickly. Verses 3 and 4, Cain and Abel each bring offerings. So they're grown now. Abel keeps sheep. Uh, Cain is a farmer. And for some reason, they, they understand that in due season that, that they should come before God and give thanks. And so they each bring something from what God has provided from their various uh, livelihoods. And Abel brings uh, some and Cain brings some. And it says that God doesn't regard Cain's offering but he has regard for Abel's offering. They both outwardly look like they're doing the same thing, right? They both bring something and and in an act of thanksgiving, say, God, we're giving something back to you. We're acknowledging that this all came from you. Blessed be God, thank you. And externally, they're both going through the same motions, but God regards one and then disregards the other. God is not worshiped by Cain. Doesn't please him. So the question is why? And I think it's uh, in the, the, the contrast between their two offerings. Look in verses three and four. He says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay, that's good. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. If Moses wrote this and probably gave uh, these books to Israel as they were entering into the promised land and they'd received the law and God had established a covenant with them and the arrangements for worship and offerings and sacrifices and such, I think their ears would have perked up when they heard this and, and noticed that Cain did not bring first fruits, but Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and fat portions. I think they would have recognized that Abel is bringing his first and his best, and it reflects something, I think, about Abel's heart. And we don't have to suspect this later on. Let me see here, do I have power? I do have power. In Hebrews 11, we get this sentence about Abel that helps us understand what's going on here. Why was God pleased with Abel's sacrifice? And it says, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So the motivation for Abel here in bringing firstborn and the fat portions was faith. And it says, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. God accepts his gifts because he accepts Abel's faith that's behind those gifts. In other words, I love this, this is Ray Ortland Jr. Says, in other words, Cain threw a tip on the table, but Abel gave his best. Cain get gave out of his income, but Abel gave out of his capital. Cain made a gesture of thanks, but Abel risked his future growth potential by giving God some of his breeding stock. If you think about, what do you want to keep if you want to raise the strongest, healthiest flock? Well, you keep the firstborn and the best, right? But he gives of that. So he says the difference between these two men was tokenism versus love, and God took it seriously. In other words, mere formal duty, outward going through the motions, uh, but inward heart, um, far from God, it seems, from Cain. God isn't honored by our formal duty if our hearts aren't in it, if there's not worship and adoration and faith involved. Worship that's merely external doesn't please God. It doesn't matter how fastidious it is or careful to observe every letter. God's not pleased because God looks at the heart which is something, if you've grown up in the church you've heard that, God looks on the heart but stop and think, that means that God can see gratitude in your heart, he can see faith and he can see the absence of those things that means that I could have every one of you fooled in this room, but not God I was listening a couple of weeks ago Tim Keller uh, was speaking at a a graduation uh, a few years ago for seminary grads as they were heading into pastoral ministry. And it was a pretty sobering sermon. Right out of the gate he said, this is not a very happy sermon. (laughs) And three warnings he wanted to give to all these fresh out of their MDiv uh, future pastors. And one of those three points was ministry can breed phoniness ministry. And that's true for pastors, but that's true for uh, grace group shepherds. That's true of core group leaders. That's true of moms and dads shepherding your kids. Ministry can breed phoniness because what happens? Well, if my heart is dry, if I'm distant from the Lord, if I'm not abiding in Christ myself, and I'm called upon to help others and point other people and pray with other people and give counsel, and I'm doing that out of of emptiness, that is going to breed phoniness. It's going to make us good at the externals even when the internal isn't there. And this is a warning he was saying. We are predisposed to this, I think, is to reduce worship to the external and not the heart. And here, right out of the gate, we see sin at its roots as a worship problem. And so if we want to address sin, we need to address the heart of worship. So that's number one. Sin's a worship problem before a behavior problem. Number two, sin leads us to see and treat other people as competition instead of community. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the opening 11 chapters of Genesis and on through. I mean, the key words are violence and fighting and bloodshed. I mean, that sort of sums up what is sin? um, How does sin blow up horizontally in human relationships? We see each other as competition. We saw it in chapter 3, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, and before, they were naked and unashamed. They didn't feel like they had to hide from one another. There was trust there. And immediately, shame enters in, and they want to hide from one another. And they say, you're not safe. And she says, you're not safe. And they look to God, you're not safe. And they try to hide. And they start blaming one another. And instead of clinging to one another, they both point the finger at each other. And community begins to be separated. They start seeing one another as on other sides. And it gets worse here with Cain resenting his brother and feeling angry and brooding in it, all the way to the point of taking those matters into his hands and killing his brother. Look at verse five. Cain was very angry and his faith fell. He's angry with God, Abel's competition. God regards his offering. So what do I do? Get right with God? No, I get rid of Abel. And I want us to identify with Cain here. I think sometimes with stories like this, uh, it can be easy to want to identify with the the victim and the good guy, right? With Abel, and we we think about times that people have seen us as competition and sinned against us and hurt us and we were the righteous one. But I want to make sure that we see that we all have Cain's heart here. Um, Jesus made it very clear that that impulse, that heart impulse that Cain had that ended up in Murder, literal murder, is in all of us. He said this, he said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I think we can all agree on that one. Whoever murders should be liable to, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Murder, liable to judgment. Angry with your brother, liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That seems pretty strong. John later says it even stronger in 1 John. He says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That sounds a little overstated, doesn't it? John just says, if you hate in your heart, your brother, your sister, and you have resentment and anger and you don't deal with it, that's in its essence, the same as murder. In fact, he says it even clearer, when you are like that, you are like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And while that impulse may never lead to physical violence in you, maybe not even verbal violence, maybe you're good at keeping that Cain impulse hidden in your heart and it just works itself out in the ways that you think about other people in your anger, God is saying that is the same impulse as Cain. It's the murder impulse. It's to see one another as competition rather than community. Do you see Cain impulses in your heart? That inclination is an outworking of our sin nature, and we all have it. Number three, sin's a hidden dragon. Verse 7. The Lord graciously comes to Cain, he's brooding, he's sulking, his face has fallen and he's probably nursing his own uh, anger and justifying himself in his mind and I can't believe God would reject me and what is it about Abel and yada yada. And God graciously comes to Cain and tries to talk him off his, the ledge of his anger. And the first thing he says, verse seven to Cain, is sin is crouching at the door. Sin's crouching at the door. And it struck me this time in Genesis that in Genesis three, where does the tempter come from? Where does the whispering lie of doubt and and temptation come from? Well, it comes externally, right? Satan comes up and and whispers to Eve and to Adam um, and and plants that seed of doubt and lures them away from obedience to God. But here in chapter four, where does the lying voice come from? Satan's not here. There's no serpent in this scene. One generation uh, down the road and it's clear here that the voice of, of, of sin is coming from Cain, right? We begin to see sin nature has been passed down. That it's internal, you know, Ephesians 2 says about our sin nature that every one of us is just uh, born spiritually dead. We're following the course of this world. We are just living in line with what Satan wants us to do, wants us to rebel from God, live apart from him, you know, give God the, the hand and say, I'll, I'll do my own thing, and Satan's happy with that. And, in, and Ephesians 2 says we are all just following that course. And we're not doing it because we're innocent victims that we just were born this way, but we are born with the, our own desires, it says, passions that are evil, with desires of the body and mind that are bent away from God. And it says, because of that, we are by nature children of wrath, born this way, by nature we're children of wrath. Which, as I think about the opening chapters of Genesis and this seed of the serpent and seed of the woman, in some ways, even though we're all born of Eve, physically, spiritually, the Bible presents us as all being born with the seed of the serpent here. We are all born by nature, children of wrath. So I mean by the sin is a hidden dragon, that in us, this sin nature is what Satan wants to to, to fuel in us. And he says, it's crouching at the door. This is imagery of like a rattlesnake or an animal that you don't have to do much with to get it to strike. You ever seen a rattlesnake coiled and rattling on a trail while you're hiking or whatever? You get the impression, I don't have to do much to tick it off, right? And to make it strike. And he says to Cain, your sin is crouching at the door. You have desires, Cain, that are ready to pounce. One of my favorite Gandalf lines from The Hobbit was this. I, won't, I tried last week in Lomrod. I won't here to do my best Sir Ian McKellen voice. But um, it's, he says it to Bilbo and the 12 dwarves as they get near the mountain where Smog is and they're trying to figure out how to go in there and get all their treasure back. And he says, it, uh, says it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. That's sort of what this is saying. God is saying to Cain, there is a live dragon here. It's crouching. Don't leave this out of your calculations. It's a, it's a warning. Number four, sin wants to take you down. This crouching, this, this crouching desire uh, wants to take you down. The next phrase says, um, it's desires for you, Cain. Your sin nature is a self-destructive inclination. And I don't think that we think that often, that we have desires that feel good and right that make us think that should be acted on. and Those desires, God says to Cain and to us, are actually for you, out for you is what it means. Maybe your Bible has a footnote and says it could be the word against, and you think, well, for and against sound opposite, but it's for you like, like a saltwater crock is for you, Right? He's for you, right? He's out for you. So he says to Cain, your sin is out for you. You have desires that want to destroy you, that want to blow up your marriage, that want to blow up your family relationships. There's a desire in you that wants to blow up churches and lead you down a path of destruction. And it's right here in you. This is so countercultural. We are bombarded, I think, with the message that if your heart desires it, it must be right. And so trust your heart. I mean, that's Disney, right? Just follow your heart. I saw a hilarious tweet from Kevin Young the other day. He must have taken his kids to see Moana. And he said, lessons from Moana, listen to the ocean, your grandmother, he listed three or four things, don't listen to your parents. (laughs) He says, but the music was great. (laughs) We get this message that listen to your, oh yeah, listen to your heart was one. Listen to the ocean, your grandmother, and your heart. Don't listen to your parents, right? Um, We have sins or desires that are uh, for us or against us, they want to take us down. A few, couple of weeks ago at Band of Brothers, uh, Scott Rosecrans was, was talking to our men about um, the one another command: don't grumble and complain against one another. And was talking, we were talking about anger, which is in particular the sin nature desire in this scene that Cain is dealing with. That's for him. And he sh- he read this quote that I said I'm going to steal that actually, and we're gonna we're gonna all look at this again here. Oh, that's not it. Where is my quote? Is it back there? Did I go past it? Help me out, Jonathan Wheeler. Is it in there? Of the seven deadly sins? Okay, I'm just gonna read it for you. Listen to this. This is Frederick Beekner, and he's talking about anger in particular and the way that our, our desire to express our anger is actually against us. Listen to this. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, and to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, thinking about what you will say and how they won't be able to respond, that sort of thing, and to savor the last toothsome morsel both of the pain that you've been given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king, he says. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself, The skeleton at the feast is you. That desire that feels so right to just resent and justify yourself and let that other person really feel your anger, he says, you think that that's actually hurting the other person, he says, and you're actually devouring yourself. I think that's the way sin is. All of our sinful desires are actually wanting to destroy ourselves and everything that we hold dear. And next, God says to Cain, um, You must rule over it. Number five, our sin nature is not easily mastered. He says you must rule over it, which tells me that's not easy. The implication is like Eric said a couple weeks ago, we don't boot up Godward. Righteousness isn't our default, but this desire that's for us, that's crouching, isn't easily overcome. It's constantly after us. John Owen said, wrote once, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The implication is if you do nothing, sin will just consume and destroy. You must rule over it. But our problem is, we all know, Bible's record and your life experience has probably shown you uh, what a failure we are at ruling over it. We can have good moments, good days even maybe we feel, but over the course of our life, these desires always seem to get the upper hand. Last few things about sin. We see in Cain, I think we can see in ourselves, number six, our sin nature can incline us to actually resent God's consequences instead of repenting of our sin. Look at verse 13 and 14. God brings consequences for his, the murder of his brother and Cain doesn't say, I'm so sorry, God. Not once in this whole chapter does, God, does Cain ever admit or uh, seek repentance or express sorrow over sin. Even when the consequences are handed down, he actually complains that God's consequences are too harsh. The guy who just murdered his brother, saying that God's too harsh. He says, my punishment's greater than I can bear. You've taken away my livelihood. You've driven me from your face and, and now other people are gonna wanna kill me. Now I'm in danger. And he starts complaining about God instead of repenting of his sin and seeking forgiveness. I wanna ask, when you hear the Bible say that the wages of your sin is death, are you ever tempted to, in your own mind, maybe you wouldn't say it, think that's a little harsh. Come on, death. Instead of thinking, wow, my sin is really serious. What an offense to God it is for me to shake my fist at him with the way I live and to turn away from him. Um, Does God's threatened consequences uh, cause repentance in your heart or actually make you resent him even more? That's what it did with Cain. He just hardened his heart more toward God. Last thing about sin here um, is left unchecked sin increases. I think starting in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, uh, one of the takeaways from Cain's genealogy here is that he leaves the presence of the Lord and he goes off and he begins having children and children's children. It's sort of out of the presence of the Lord. Uh, He is not among those at the end that says, people who began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you know where that went? It just got worse and worse and worse and it spirals down and Lamech is almost this like Marvel villain character. He's like very like like uber, he's like uber hostile and violent and and he takes two wives and God has said one man and one woman become one flesh and he takes two wives and then he brags to his wives about how strong he is and violent and unlike Cain he's just killed a young man just for offending him or striking him and he's sort of boasting and his twisted logic in his mind seems to think that it was a badge of honor for Cain that God put his protection over Cain. And so he imagines, well, if that's it for Cain, how much more do I deserve God's protection? You know, this, ah, you know. And the picture at the end of this whole line is sin is just getting deeper and deeper and deeper uh, and more violent. So where sin runs deep, God's grace is more. I wanna quickly trace back now through this chapter and look at five points that God keeps interacting with Cain and it's gracious It's gracious, it's gracious. Number one, God's grace shines when he gives instruction and warning as Cain's brooding. Look at verse six again. He comes to Cain and he says, why are you angry? Um, If you do well, will you not be accepted? He comes to Cain saying, don't go that way, come this way. Don't harden your heart toward me and your brother. Come this way. That's gracious of God to call sinners away from sin. This is what Psalm 25, 8 says. It says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Cain's in a bad place. He's hardening his heart. And God graciously, um, in his goodness, comes to Cain and he instructs him in the way. He says, don't go that way. Go this way. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Come. And Cain hardens his heart toward God. One commentator, Derek Kidner, he's a British commentator and his Genesis commentary is like paper thin compared to all the other ones because he doesn't waste words. And I love this. He said, Eve had to be talked into her sin by Satan but Cain can't be talked out of his sin by God. He hardens his heart toward that merciful instruction. And then he kills his brother. And then, number two, God's grace shines as he invites a murderer to repent. Verse nine Cain's killed his brother, and God comes to him just like with Adam and Eve, not dropping the hammer, but with a question. God is willing to have dialogue over this rather than just come in and go, you know, done. He says, Where's your brother Abel? Cain. Where's your brother Abel? God's willing to deal here even with Cain. Cain doesn't respond. With repentance again. It should amaze us that God does not just judge right here. It tells us that God is willing to forgive a murderer. God's open to that. A few weeks ago, a guy came out of prison, shot a police officer up in Whittier Hills. I think his name is Michael Mejia and i didn 't see, but I heard that the, the the funeral the memorial service for that officer Boyd he was a believer, his, all his kids were believers, and they stood up and testified to the grace of Christ and the the forgiveness that there is in God and, and they talked about how even though in themselves they they couldn 't imagine forgiving this man that God is willing to forgive, even in this case, if he would repent it just was a beautiful a gospel message in the midst of this memorial service, but that's because the heart of God is this way. God is willing to forgive sin that we call gross and heinous. Murder, violent bloodshed, a brother murdering his brother. God is willing to forgive. It's just amazing. We should, we should be stunned that God would forgive. That rapists, murderers, adulterers. There's no sin so big that God says, I'm sorry, that's just, That's just a little too much. You know what the only sin in the Bible that says, God says I won't forgive? Unbelief, that's right. Which is basically saying to God, I refuse the grace that you offer me through Christ. You would be willing to forgive me and all my list of sins, no thank you. That's the one sin that God says he won't forgive. But outside of that, as big as you want, as numerous as you want, as ugly as you want, as consistent, persistent as you want, we bring that sin to God in confession and repentance, and he'll forgive that. It's amazing. But Cain doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I don't know where my brother is. In fact, am I even his keeper? He lies and he denies responsibility. And number three, God's grace shines as he restrains his anger even at this point. He flat out lies to God. God gives him an opportunity to repent and he doesn't take it and said he lies to his, God's face. And instead of taking him out and taking eye for an eye and avenging Abel's life, he actually gives consequences that still allow Cain to go on and live and have a family it's amazing. Number four, God's grace then shines by placing protection on Cain, even when Cain complains. He has the nerve to complain about his consequences, and God doesn't say that's it. He still, he doesn't do for Abel what he ends up doing for Cain. Look at what it says. He, when he comes to Cain, he says, "Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground." What do you imagine Abel's blood is crying to out to God for the ground? What is it saying? What do you imagine? Justice, right? God says, Abel's innocent blood is crying to me. Do something about this, avenge this. And God actually doesn't yet avenge Abel's death. But here with Cain, who's unrepentant, lying to God, complaining about the consequences, God actually places protection on him and says, if anyone tries to take vengeance into their own hands and doesn't leave it to me, God... I will avenge Cain's death sevenfold. That should surprise us. God is showing grace to Cain that in the, in the, at least in the near setting, he's not even showing to Abel. It's not because God is unjust, but God will make all things right. He is the He is the avenger, and He will avenge in His own time, in His own way. And if Cain refused to heart, uh, to soften his heart uh, before he died, then he would have face the, the vengeance of God for Abel's death but he places it on Cain which is just amazing to me here and last the fifth thing here is that God's grace his common grace is poured out on Cain and all his descendants even though they go off and they live apart from the presence of God um, away from him that's what's going on here when it traces it down and it says he's descendants of Cain, these different guys. He was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock and they developed animal husbandry and how to raise animals better and, and, and to have bigger flocks. And he says, and, and some of Cain's line actually ended up um, developing musical instruments and in art and culture. And, and some of Cain's... Uh, descendants end up um, becoming forgers of instruments of bronze and iron, things that no doubt made life easier and helped protect themselves. And, And all of these things are common grace. God gives intelligence and skill to people to create things that make life better and more beautiful and more enjoyable and culture and civilization is springing up in this godless line of Cain. If you ever stop and just think about the common grace of God in the world, it's amazing. You think about in our world right now how this is just proliferated with technology and medical you know technology and, and, and beauty and musical and art gifts in the world that make the world a much beautiful place. And, in the, and, and God's given incredible brilliance and talent to people who shake their fist at him and deny him. And billions of people in the world benefit from all of this common grace who, who reject God and reject Jesus. And God continues to, to allow us to enjoy all this amazing common grace. So you see through this chapter where sin runs deep, God's grace keeps being more and more and more. So last question, how does all this point us forward to Christ? Look back at Genesis 3.15. That, ver- that one verse right there, in some ways, tells us ahead of time the storyline of the rest of the Bible culminating in Jesus. When he says to Satan, God, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, the rest of this story is gonna be a, a battle story, a conflict story between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head. In the end, God's man will win, in other words, And you shall bruise his heel. And in chapter four is like round one of this long battle that's gonna play out. And round one, Satan comes out swinging and Cain takes down Abel, the innocent brother. And it looks bad right out of the gate. But right in the last two verses here, we get this glimmer of hope. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son, another son, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. The Bible says that God is the one who declares the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, who alone says, My counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. And right here at the end of this chapter, we get this little glimpse of that purpose in 315, where one day he was going to crush Satan's head. It would happen. Because down the line, after Seth and Enosh and people began to call on the name of the Lord all the way through to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the way along, we finally come to Jesus. And Galatians 4 says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The seed of the woman would win. And this is pointing us forward to that. We need to be encouraged by that. One last place in the New Testament that talks about Abel is Hebrews chapter 12. And it draws some connection between Abel and Jesus and helps us see how Christ is the better Abel. It says this, that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the author of Hebrews wants us to think back to Abel and see how Christ has done something amazingly better. Jesus comes and offers himself, not a firstborn fat portions, not a separate offering, he himself as God's only begotten son, sinless, spotless, undeserving of any violence. He gives his own life as a ransom and he's murdered by his own brothers. That's what John 1 says. He came to those who were his own and his own rejected him. His own cried crucify him and his own hung him on a cross and and he bled. And Jesus' blood, Hebrews 12 says, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood says, Justice must be served. And Jesus' blood, as you read Hebrews, says justice has been served. Once for all, a sacrifice has been made permanently one time for all who will trust him. Jesus' blood says to you, justice has been served on your behalf. Will you receive that free gift? Will you repent of your sin? Will you turn and receive it? That's what it says. And the resurrection is, of Jesus is this guarantee that God uh, accepted Jesus' offering. Jesus offers himself in our place and he's buried and God raises him from the dead because death couldn't hold him, had no claim on him, Acts says, Peter says in Acts. Why? God had regard for Jesus' offering. When Jesus said it was finished, God said, it is finished. And he raises him from the dead. And the reason we can have peace with God and and we, with whatever we offer, we offer up our faith and our dependence, we can walk away like Abel and God has regard for our offering because Christ made our offering and we're in him. Just three encouragements to you as we think about all this and think about being his church. Number one, rest easy. If your hope and confidence is in Christ alone, um, God has accepted your offering, because that offering's Christ. And He's for you this morning. He's accepted you uh, this morning, and you're just as accepted today as you were last week. The second encouragement is to fight on. We're supposed to fight sin. And something's changed from the time that God comes to Cain and says you must rule over it, well now in Christ, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? It says God gives us his spirit to dwell in us and, and Paul describes in Galatians 5 that this, this battle now that happens within us that sin doesn't just rule anymore. We've been set free from bondage to sin and the spirit's desires are actually at war with these desires in us can have victory. We don't have to present the members of our body to sin for unrighteousness. God can actually give us victory in our sin and so just have a, a, a victim mentality and just a, a fatalistic mentality, let's fight sin together and let's help one another with that. And last is this, let's spread the word. One of the things when we're reminded and, and, and amazed again at how gracious God is and how gracious God has been to us, it should make us want other people to know that confess that it doesn't always. I, can, it confe- I confess it can often just stop there with me just being so happy that God is gracious to me, even though my sin runs deep. And it doesn't spill over into this desire of I want other people to get in on that. I want to encourage us to be praying. Uh, Anna and Adam Day, before they came back from being in in Kentucky while he was doing his PhD, we were at a church called Sojourn Community Church. And uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about some of the things that they really took away from that church and and, and loved. And one of those was that that week in and week out, they were being reminded Sunday after Sunday that the gospel uh, transforms us and forms five identities in us. That is, the gospel makes us worshipers, The gospel makes us disciples, learners and followers of Jesus. Uh, It makes us family because God is our father, makes us brothers and sisters with one another, makes us servants, it forms us into people who serve God and serve one another um, uh, as God and Christ has served us. And the fifth identity is witness. Part of a gospel-formed identity is that we see ourselves as witnesses First Peter 2, sort of, that we who once had not received mercy, now we've received mercy, and now proclaim his excellency to other people. And I need to hear that, and we need to hear that. And I want to encourage us as we go out this morning to be thinking about how are we spreading the word? Are we looking, are we praying for people by name and opportunities uh, through which doors of opportunity that God has given us uniquely to spread this word? Steve Ross was in here last September preaching about, pray the Lord of the harvest. The fields are ripe to the harvest. And one of the things he said that reminded me is I always think what that just means is there's a lot of need out there to go proclaim Christ. But actually, Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying there's a lot of readiness out there. God has prepared harvest to send us out into. So as we finish, I wanna pray for these three things uh, for us. Let me pray. God, one of the things I know that you want uh, for every uh, Christian uh, is for us to know peace in our heart that comes from knowing that you have promised to be our father because of Jesus and that our sin is forgiven, all of it. And even though we are not deserving, uh, we will receive life through Christ's death at Calvary, like we sang. God, I pray that this morning uh, you would be reinforcing that peace in our hearts. Uh, God, I pray that your spirit would stir up, uh, stir us out of complacency about sin, Lord. Pray you would make us aware of sin that we're blind to in ourselves. Pray you'd be gracious to do that. Lord, I pray that the sin that we are aware of in ourselves, that we either feel totally inadequate um, to overcome or resist, that you would give uh, fresh uh, faith and fresh desire to fight that. I pray that we would invite other people into the battle with us, Lord, and that we would, um, by your power, rule over sin rather than it ruling over us. And God, I pray that you would make us witnesses. I pray that you would uh, uniquely, in this next season of our life as a church, uh, make every one of us be forming that identity of witness into us, put a burden on our hearts like Jesus had, that, that he went outside and saw people uh, as harassed and helpless without a shepherd and he wanted to point them to himself, the shepherd. I pray you'd make us the same, that you'd help us to point people that you put in our lives toward you, the shepherd. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.